Yeah, you switched my seizure medications. For allergy medication. While it was taking care of our infant son. Welcome to Why Daddy Never Cries podcast with your host, Chuck Kelleher. At Why Daddy Never Cries, we'll explore the lives surrounding daddies, their children, divorce, and silent domestic violence. We'll hear real-life horror stories from unsung heroes fighting for the ability to stay in their children's lives. We'll get those voices heard and hopefully find solutions before you lunatics burn the whole place to the ground. Hang in there, daddies. Chuck's here. Chuck Kelleher and Why Daddy Never Cries are providing his podcast as a public service. I've known Chuck for 45 years, and he's neither a lawyer nor a mental health professional. He's not a doctor nor a rogue scholar by any stretch of the imagination. Chuck is simply a guy who's lived in hell for 20 years. Once he found a way out, he drew a map to help others navigate their own way home. The views and opinions expressed by Why Daddy Never Cries employees or our guests are their own. Guest appearance on the program do not imply an endorsement of them, their opinions, or any entity they represent. And please, for the love of God, if you have any questions or fears about unique circumstances, please contact a lawyer, a religious leader of your choice, or medical professional in your area. Don't fuck this up, brothers, because we're all in this together. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Voss G2, for helping small and medium-sized businesses elevate their brand perception with design. Take your brand to the next level at VossG2.com. We'd also like to thank Harry Duran and his team at Fullcast for their amazing assistance. If you're planning a podcast and you haven't contacted Fullcast, you might as well call your show Podfade. All right, man. Today we're speaking with John, an Army veteran from California, and he is fighting just to remain a part of his son's life. Not only is John outspoken about how the family court system is treating him and his family, but he's naming names and fighting back legally. In a world where headlines scream for attention, we choose to listen to the whispers that hold the true revolutions. All right, let's get into it. All right, John, welcome to the Why Daddy Never Cries podcast. How we doing, brother? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming, man. You're actually the first guy I've interviewed that I didn't know anything about coming in. So I was like, I I really don't know his story. This is going to be interesting. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where do we call home these days? My name is John, as we already got, (laughs) but I'm from California. I live near the capital. I've lived here in this house for about five years, but uh, I've lived in California for most of my life. Very cool. I served in the army after completing my California high school proficiency examination scored a 99 on the ASVAB and pretty much everyone was trying to get me to become an interrogator or, or something else. And I'm like, no, I can't interrogate people because I don't like hurting people. And realistically, that's what I would have to do. And they put me in as communications. So I ended up being essentially every type of communications the military has to offer about Six, not even six months after I made it to my first post, I was put in a team chief position, started training other people how to use the equipment properly. About a year after being at my first location, I became U.S. Forces Korea Commanding General's primary communications support team leader. Basically, what I did was I made sure that his secure comms were always available whenever he was transporting over the continent. That really made me proud. My soldiers really liked me. And they stayed out of trouble because I was always in their business, cared about them. It was really rewarding. I came out of the military. After that, I worked security services at a school program for troubled youth, which was great for me too, because I got to sit there and, and talk to young people about staying out of trouble, making better decisions than I did. Because honestly, going into the military isn't the most profitable source of <laughs> really? income. After that, I went fully armed. And started working for pretty much the most trusted security company in the region. A year after working there, I became the head field training officer and watch commander. I worked there for several years. I never had a single complaint while working there. Never had to use a weapon on anyone, including times where I had to take firearms off of people. Only had to make one arrest. That was when somebody tried to grab my firearm. Mistake. I didn't have any choice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and even when the cops came for him, he was drunk, so I told him to just throw him in the drunk tank. It was Friday night. He wasn't coming out till Monday because there's no judges on the weekend. I said, he'll learn his lesson. <laughs> yeah, he will. And he never got arrested again. I checked up on him. So it worked out. 
doesn't always work out like that. But you, when you're factoring in the fact that you're dealing with young people and alcohol comes into play, they're going to make mistakes. You don't want to ruin somebody's entire life for making one stupid mistake. Nobody right. got hurt. <laughs> you, you, you did it right, man. No, I agree 100%. Unfortunately, uh, after a few years of getting there, I started to uh, realize that I had some problems with uh, brain injury, and I have a seizure disorder, so I couldn't do it anymore. I actually lost my driver's license for 11 months because of that, and had to take a drive test like I was 18 years old again. It's kind of ridiculous. And I drove for a living. That is that. (laughs) I have uh, complex partial seizures in relation to traumatic brain injury that occurred in a in the army. So I'm now on VA. It took me almost 10 years because my records were not kept. And I eventually got a hold of the last doctor that treated me when I was in the military. Actually, he had passed away. I got a hold of his widow and he kept records. He kept copies of all the records on file at home. So she just pulled his copy out of there and said, here you go. And I, I was like, you have no idea. You just saved, saved me. Because I was on the verge of losing my house. And I actually did lose that house because the VA took a while to get me that initial payment. But that's okay. I recovered. I bought a crappy house on short sale. I put like 30 grand into it in the few years that I lived there and sold it for more than double what I bought it for. And then I bought this house and, you know, worked on my credit. Now I'm sitting at almost perfect credit and just trying to make a good life for my son. And now you have one, one boy? Yeah. He's uh, he's going to be five this year and whatever. He actually started coming into this world on Veterans Day, which I took as a sign. You know, my buddies that didn't make it home were telling me, this is what you do now. And I said, you're right. My wife went through pretty uh, harsh labor. It was 13 hours and he wasn't crowning and there was no dilation past a certain point. So we had an emergency C-section and she was very brave. And I was there with her the whole time, holding her hand, reassuring her. When he came out, they held him up to the screen, and he was crying. He was so beautiful. I said, oh, my God, he's perfect. That was the first thing that came out of my mouth. And I said, Johnny. And he opened his eyes and looked at me and stopped crying. Oh, my God. He already knew my voice because I spoke to him every day in the womb and sang to him. Yep. You know, it. You know, I I wanted him to know and be comfortable with me because I was going to be his primary caregiver after she went back to work. And I was. And I loved it. We got married about two months before Johnny was born. I didn't want him to be born without a father of record. I didn't want him to be, you know, that nasty word, a bastard. Uh, And I realized it doesn't really mean much in, in modern society. But to me, it was kind of like a thing of honor and respect towards my son. If he was okay. going to come into the world, he's going to have a father and know who he is. So he came into the world and my wife was a week out from having to go back at work. And she broke her leg while walking down the stairs with Johnny. Of course, he was miraculously unhurt. My um, God. Yeah. I'm incredibly thankful for that. The story changed about everything that happened a few times though. So yeah. Anyways, but her leg was legitimately broken. Just how it happened is. The oh mystery. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the story changed. And that was the problem that I had, and that was the second time during our relationship she had broken a leg. So when did you realize that your relationship was going south? Christmas and Thanksgiving were nightmares. My birthday got canceled because of her. She was not a good partner. Unfortunately, as soon as we got married, everything went completely different. And this person that I thought loved me and respected me was not the person that I thought. Think the pregnancy had anything to do with that? I mean, I don't want to use that as a cop-out. A lot of women have some problems when it relates to pregnancy, and that's totally understandable. It's scientifically proven for it to be normal. And I posited that may have been the chance, the cause, rather, in court. I said, you know, I'm not an expert, but I do know she was taking medications that she wasn't talking to me about because I live here and I can see when there's a pill bottle, you know? And uh, the thing is that she's never been ordered since then to have any counseling or I keep asking, like she really needs counseling. You know, I'm concerned. She's spent the entire 14 month marriage talking about me behind my back while everyone was telling me I'm a good father. 
it's hard to miss when everyone you leave the room it goes quiet for a second and they start talking about you it's kind of obvious yeah and then by august right after my birthday i told her in 2019 that we needed to get a divorce because i had already recognized the relationship had turned toxic and that i was constantly being talked about behind my back so she started crying and said oh i'm gonna kill myself you know the typical response people that can't handle these types of things and i made the mistake of staying giving her another chance she just used the time to try and generate evidence against me because she knew the divorce was coming she used my money to buy copies of everything that he had here so he comfortable at her parents house and sent him to her parents house using my card and eventually i figured that out and said you know you need to stop doing that and she still did it further down the line uh, i asked her for a divorce in january i wasn't going to do it right before during the holidays because that's horrible that's mean yeah. I, that's really mean-spirited and horrible i would do something like that but after that time passed i realized yeah, no, it's, it's over at january 3rd or 4th i asked her for a divorce again said you know this is final i'm gonna need you to move out and what and, are we in 2020 now or? yeah that's 2020 2020 okay 2020 and then i engaged a lawyer and petitioned for a divorce she found some kind of lawyer i don't know how she found this lawyer but this lawyer works as a temporary judge in the same court and I have not had a single legal <laughs> like court hearing or trial or anything even considered since because she's so connected. Did research on the attorney and she has no social media. She doesn't have any advertisements online. So I'm just like, mm, how did she meet this person? And then I found out by looking at her evidence submission that the neighbor across the street had referred her to her and also fabricated evidence because it had her name on it. There was a lot of that going on. So we got to the first hearing that I was actually allowed to appear in. Judge Doe sat at the hearing in Sacramento, and it was for a temporary restraining order. Her lawyer said that I attempted suicide twice recently during the hearing. And I said, that's not true. You know, I've never attempted suicide. And they had no evidence of domestic violence. There was no domestic abuse. There was no police reports. Nobody corroborated her story. Nobody. So six months later, after granting the temporary orders the judge and the judge saying, your disability is of concern to the court for the reason as of granting the restraining order, which is a civil rights violation, clear cut. And he didn't even know what disabilities I had. So how could you possibly make that judgment, right? Six months go by, and my divorce case turns into trial on the merits of fraud, by the way. She never once proved that anyone had ever even heard me talking about suicide. So we get to the trial. The complaint has been edited. It's a completely different complaint. No longer contains the words, John never hurt me or physically attacked. And that said that twice in her original complaint. That was edited out because, of course, it was an admission that she wasn't abused, like repeatedly. Right. She even put in her complaint a story about her switching out my medications with antihistamines for God knows how long. And I remember being incredibly tired and worn out from it. And I finally caught her doing it. And her story was that I overreacted to her doing it. No, that's spousal battery. And switch my medication. Doing, yeah, it? you switch my seizure medications. For allergy medication. While it was taking care of our infant son. Not only is that spousal battery, that's child endangerment of your own child. And it would Why? be attempted murder if you had an allergic reaction. <laughs> or murder it, if you had a seizure because of it. My seizures are relatively mild. It's a okay. complex partial seizure, but it's just I don't have control. Yeah. It's like autopilot, kind of. And there's no guarantee I would have taken care of him if one of those seizures happened. Probably would not have. Mm -hmm. It's just not safe and incredibly wrong. It didn't matter. The facts of the case did not matter. The evidence provided did not matter. By the time I got to trial, I realized that my lawyer had not filed a single document on my behalf. However, she billed me for exactly my entire bank account. Yeah, it's funny how that uh, works out. Every penny. She did not file the deposition in which she admitted to spousal battery, child endangerment, using drugs and lying about it in her initial statement, etc. There was a lot that was going against her in that deposition and never made it into evidence because it was never submitted. 
None of my contentions were submitted. She had stolen a vehicle from my house and abducted our son. That wasn't submitted. By the time I got to actually go into the courtroom, they had already held the pretrial conference without me and were discussing the deal that they had just made right in front of me. Was your lawyer at least there or no? Oh, yeah. She was colluding. (laughs) Yeah. And that's a pretty normal practice in family court, I found out since then. Like, they don't even have to try. They don't even just nod at each other, basically, and they're colluding. That's it. Who's going to get the most money out of this? We'll work it out. Exactly. (laughs) My clients had a cash. Let's settle. Yeah. They tried to push me into a settlement, and then they put me into private mediation, which is, I will tell everybody, do not do not go into private mediation. Don't do it. You sacrifice all of your rights when you go into private mediation. They are not allowed to be subpoenaed about anything that occurs in private mediation. They can do whatever they want, collude openly. They can steal evidence. They can fabricate evidence. The only thing that they're not legally allowed to do is have that doctor falsify or lie on a report. She made a psychological evaluation of me based off of a five-minute meeting in which I said I never volunteered for private mediation. I haven't signed anything consenting. And then she tried to force read me implied consent so she could do a psychological evaluation. I said, what are you doing? She did three times. And on the third time, she started explaining and then read from the thing. And I said, why would I ever work with a psychotherapist that just deceived me? Right. We just met. That's deception. And you're paid by the other party. I said, you do not have my consent and I will not work with you. So she provided a report that claimed she made a psychological evaluation based off of a five-minute meeting Yeah, I uh, had four mediators, and I do not recommend that process to anyone. It's the biggest waste of time. You're throwing money out the window. They'll have Mm -hmm. conversations with your spouse when you're not even in the room. And same thing, I walk into a meeting, they're already sitting there, and they've come to the decision about where I can spend my vacation with my children. There were so many fabricated documents handed in there. I was like, you know that none of this was accepted as evidence because it was not evidence. It was rejected because it's not evidence. The evidence log says nothing was accepted, so you can't use this. Still used it. I'm like, this is not evidence, though. It was fabricated, and I proved it. Okay, this is how shammy my trial was. It was one day under Judge Mize, the supervising judge of the court. Judge Mize was not an active uh, judge at that point because his election was canceled in 2020. You can't sit as a judge if you're not elected to that position. He was not appointed a commissioner, and he wasn't a temporary judge. He sat as a judge at my trial. He's also the direct supervisor for the opposing attorney, Carla Harms, who works as a temporary judge in the same court. That conflict was never disclosed. I had to find that out my own afterwards. Really? I wasn't allowed to call any witnesses, even though they were already on the list. I only had one witness. It was the person that was there all the time, four days a week, and saw how the situation was. It was my father, because he was helping with our son. By the way, my father hasn't seen our son in three years. Three years. She won't let him. None of my family. So we're going through the trial. It's one day. The orders get changed after the trial. Of course, the court reporter disappears from the record. The video that they took during the trial disappears from the record. So I can't prove that the judge sat in there and threatened to have the bailiff take me into another room and beat me because he didn't like that I was shaking my head too much. This is how the judges work at family court. And they should not be having any type of immunity. They really shouldn't. They need to be accountable for their choices and actions. And until we have accountability, it's not democracy. That's the bottom line. Accountability, checks and balances, Mm -hmm. and they need to listen to people, and they don't do that. So no evidence was applied. He couldn't answer why I was being given a restraining order against me. I said, I don't understand, Your Honor, to a completely different question that didn't apply. She sat on the stand and said, oh, yeah, I wanted him dead. I wanted him to kill himself repeatedly with a smile on her face. But somehow I got a restraining order against me. Family court is ridiculous. I spoke with one gentleman who said he doesn't even bother with family court anymore. He just goes in there, lets them do what they want, and goes straight to the next court. Most of the judges and lawyers want nothing to do with it. Once you go to Supreme Court afterwards, everything's accountable, and none of them want to go there. 
Yeah, they have no evidentiary standards. They don't obey the law. They don't obey court rules. They have their own internal rules that they try to enforce on you. They can't really. And then when you don't like fall into line working in pro per, they retaliate openly. And all of those things are federal crimes. But in 2011 in California, where I live, Mayor Steinberg, the mayor of Sacramento, and Judge Mize, of course, lobbied to make Senate Bill X211 law, which basically made it legal for judges to accept bribes in the state of California. It took 10 days to pass that bill. That's ridiculous. 10 days. Immediately after that, Judge Mize started the temporary judge program, which is them trading bribes to attorneys to handle their entire settlement department and the one-day divorce program that Judge Mize also invented, which is both of which are just complete bullshit ways to circumvent people's civil rights and in order to rotate their calendar more quickly and fleece everyone, including taxpayers that are paying out these same attorneys for favors, acting as youth counsel, guardian ad litems, etc. for the court, because the state pays out those fees when it's youth counsel. The thing is, people cannot tolerate this anymore. For decades, this has gone on. Yes. And what's the name of the bill? SBX 211. Yep. Senate Bill X 211. The reason that more people don't know about it and have such a hard time believing it is because there are actual groups. John, let me cut you off there. You're talking about retaliation. Aren't you afraid they're going to come after you? Oh, no, I might actually out them. Yeah, that's absolutely will because I'm totally unafraid. I have no criminal record. I don't commit crimes and they have nothing on me, so they can't get me. Their whole case against me is bullshit and they know it. So if they draw more attention to it by going after me, they're done. So I get to sit here and talk as much shit about them as I want. They can't do anything. But the thing is, I'm not making any of this up. This is them. This is them doing this stuff. Right. And it needs to be outed. If I don't say something, if parents don't say something, this just continues. I can't imagine my son having to go through this, my grandchildren. But this has happened to my dad and now to me. So what am I supposed to do? Sit back and watch my son's family get raped for every penny that they have? That's one reason I'm in the game. Not going to happen. So it doesn't happen to my grandkids. Not going to happen. Not letting it happen. So what I'm doing now is I'm in touch with a legislative team, my own representative, and attempting to create some legislation to chip away at the ways that they've made to hide their actions, to avoid accountability, and basically to fleece people completely unchecked. And that's that's got to happen. We're going to see a lot of pushback from police unions and the bar, of course, but we can't let that stop us. We just can't. Like we're in a situation now where the state has, in the same proportionate amount of time, had an increase of drug addicts, crime, everything across the board that occurs from a parent being separated from their children has happened in that period of time in which they've gained more power to do that. Right. So, gee, I wonder where all these societal problems are coming from when you're destroying the nuclear family, the only thing that has been scientifically proven to prevent those things from happening Happening. more commonly. And you're doing it for profit. And here's the thing. Most of the legislators are owned by special interest, like the bar, for instance, and and unions, they pay quite a bit of money to the legislators in the state to pass the legislation that they want. For instance, there's a Kids for Cash, which is, if anyone wants to look it up, Kids for Cash is pretty easy to find on Google, especially recently because judges that were involved in that situation were recently ordered to pay out over $200 million in damages. They were trading favors for orders, exactly like they're doing here. Well, that tells us that the age of accountability is in play. Right. Um, Police are being held accountable. And recently, the Supreme Court decided that police are not immune to civil or legal action while conducting an investigation. The thing is, we've got these other tools that could be a deterrent and save lives on the other end of the spectrum for citizens, but we're not utilizing them because specialists fight any type of legislation. And as you see, even in the news today, you'll see that there's always some kind of long red tape process to get police to even release videos, unless they look at it and they're like, ah, it looks fine. Just go ahead and give it to them so that they don't give us trouble. 
anytime there's a question, though, you notice how hard it is to get a copy of that video. And I don't think that's full disclosure, and that's a real problem. So we need more checks and balances in our government. And to stop letting special interests push past these legislations that protect only special interests and place us in harm. We can't be allowing that. And there's become a lot more understanding of how the legislative process works, I think, amongst the people that I talk to, at least. And I think a, a lot of people are starting to understand also that you have a representative and they're required by law to listen to you. Like, <laughs> if you call them and you tell them, hey, I got some issues on one of your constituents, and especially if you're in the same uh, party as them, they're going to be, they're like, okay, give me an idea for some legislation. They're going to have to come up with something by the next season's sessions. So you might as well give them some stuff that's going to make some traction or help people. This year, they made a new law, which was added to the bar rules 8.3, Okay, which insists that lawyers have to tell on each other to the bar. It adds additional provisions for whistleblowers to protect them. But the problem is this is placative legislation because you're just telling them to do something they're already required by law to do anyways. Yes. The rules already say that you had to put somebody under the bus if they do something illegal, if you see it. You are compelled by law Mm -hmm. to do that. And you can be disbarred if you don't do it immediately. Anyone in California can sue the state bar if they don't get the correct reaction from an attorney being reported. They don't get a response within a specific amount of time. And they say reasonable amount of time, but who defines that but the judge. So my suggestion to everyone is figure out how to file a motion and sue the bar. If you're in as deep as me, just sue the bar. Sue the DOJ, sue the bar, sue the sue the attorney general because he's a member of the bar. And if he's not holding the bar to its standards, even though it might not be his jurisdiction, he's still required to protect consumers. And attorneys are a business and you are a consumer. It's his job to prevent things like antitrust, which is basically the rule in family court. Temporary judges will not compete with each other. I know this for a fact because I tried to hire three of them. They all refused after they figured out who the other attorney was. Yeah, I've had the same issues. Yeah. So you can't get equal representation, which in itself is a violation of your civil rights. And that's right from the start. You can't get equal representation. The court that I'm in, for instance, has standing orders from a judge that were reaffirmed in 2008 that basically means a temporary judge does not have to have equal competitive representation. In other words, you had your civil rights removed by a judge's standing orders. Strictly in family. But they still enforce it. And I'm like, you can't just erase somebody's civil rights because you feel like it. And apparently they can't. That's the thing. They do it routinely. Nobody's overseeing them. The CJP, the Council on Judicial Performance in the state of California, is run by judges. They all went to the same schools. They go to the same banquets. They go to the same bar meetings. Same country clubs. They all take the same bribes. And like I said, it's legal for them to take bribes from the county. That's why a lot of cases where people sue the county for whatever crime that happens, law enforcement acts out improperly, and it doesn't make it to the news, it's probably going to get shut down. The counties individually pay these judges, and they made it legal. Get into that a little bit more. That's the Senate bill that I was talking about before, SBX 211 in Mm -hmm. 2011. As soon as that bill passed, all these programs started happening that just totally violate civil rights. Because they can take bribes, they made it easier for themselves to receive those bribes, uh, such as trades. Judges in, in California will brag about barely having to do any work because these Temporary judges will show up for the settlement, and that's where most of the paperwork occurs. All they do is hand out rubber-stamped orders as favors. You know, they could go to work maybe four hours a day, and they get paid by the state. And then in addition to that, the county pays them, and all of that needs to stop. What I'm pushing for in this new legislation is to abolish the temporary judge program because it is just an excuse for corruption to be okay. It does not serve the public interest. It actually harms the public interest. There is no consumer protection from it. The courts do not obey their own rules and have proven that they refuse to obey their own rules when it comes to that. For instance, temporary judges are not allowed to perform that duty if they've been accused of felony. 
Right. In my case, the temporary judge is still performing the duties, even though on record and in my file, there are accusations of her committing felonies. No, accusations. That's the law. Just the That's all it takes. Really? The accusation is all it takes for that person to be disqualified. I know that's all it takes for us law. not to see our kids. <laughs> yeah, and that's all it takes too. Yeah. And the reason that Judge Judge Mize later took my 8% custody that she never obeyed was that I had insulted her. Oh, the hurt feelings uh, clause? <laughs> yeah, the hurt feelings clause for an attorney who works in a highly contentious field who should be okay to handle a couple of insults. That's they weren't sure. graphic. Literally, all I said was, I know what you did. It was totally unethical. I know that you colluded. And I'm looking at the fact that my evidence was submitted and going for an appeal so that I could prove that the evidence was tampered with. And none of that was kept in the file for submissions because it wasn't accepted as evidence. However, my suggestions are kept in as evidence. And they claim that I have troublesome thinking patterns when it comes to the court. Well, yeah. For the court. It's called dissent in the First Amendment. I'm allowed to protest you. And they use my protest as evidence. I filed an anti-slap, which is an anti-standard strategic lawsuit against public participation. And basically what it is, is it's a protective measure by the government to stop people from using your first amended protected speech to petition for relief as evidence against you. And every single submission was me demanding relief from her attorney, from the mediator, from the judge that I filed a complaint with. All of it was First Amendment protected speech. And not only that, there are protections for when you file a complaint, but somehow that makes it into evidence too. So they do whatever they want. They don't care about the law. They don't care about the rules. All they care about is rotating the calendar and trading favors so that they can keep this bullshit going on. You know, continue to harm families. We already have two courts that handle every situation possible in family court. And the reason that family court exists is to lessen the burden on those two courts while violating the civil rights of the people participating in it and profiting from it. So where does all that money come from? Well, it comes from families. Why? A marriage license is a simple contract. Yep. It's like six pages in the state of California. And 20 bucks. 20 bucks. Exactly. <laughs> the thing is, these simple contracts should have very little problem dissolving. Like you send some people to mediation over the financial portion and the kids should just be 50-50 unless some kind of violence is proven. Right. Bottom line. And then the states where they have made those strict rules about 50-50 custody and domestic violence actually being enforced, like you need evidence. Domestic violence complaints have gone down almost 70%. I wonder why. It's because domestic violence has become a tool of attorneys trained by the district attorneys in their area to be used so that the district attorney doesn't actually have to investigate any domestic violence claims. In other words, so they don't have to give you a jury trial. They don't have to provide any evidence. They don't have to follow any evidentiary standards. They don't have evidentiary control. Like in my case, they had control of the phone, so they just destroyed the evidence. Well, the moment that they tried to submit those documents and said that that was the source of those documents, that phone should have been submitted as evidence, especially since it was in my name. Again, they don't obey the rules. They don't obey the law. They do what they want. And that harms America. They're yep. watching societal decline happen, wondering why it's happening. It's because they're not talking about the things that are happening in family courts. Has anything changed since you've gone after the court? Oh, things got worse. Yeah, uh. absolutely things got worse. The judge in my case has changed twice without substitution paperwork. And there's no evidence in my entire case file. The only things in there are documents that I have submitted. And again, they're just me petitioning for relief. Like, hey, your client owes me X dollars. The client's driving my vehicle and promised to pay for it, but hasn't paid anything. You know, that's technically embezzlement and also financial abuse. Since then, I can't get them to produce a copy of my visitation orders that they have. Um, the court has mysteriously lost it from my file because I requested a copy and it was not in there. It's not online. Every single other set of orders has been submitted online except for that one. And I got put in front of Judge Ueda, Kara Ueda. Uh, the first hearing that I was in, I explained 
in my filing that the entire case was based on fraud, that her attorney had accused me of attempting suicide twice in her initial request for orders, which means that by legal standards, the entire following cases were not legal. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't get a trial on the merits of fraud. Like she's never proved that I attempted suicide. Therefore, the order should not be legally enforced. Oh, she got so angry that I said that her lawyer friend did something negative. And then by the end of that hearing, I said, well, Your Honor, why don't you just admit that one, you consider this person your co-worker. You're never going to report the felonies that I've reported to you as you're required to by law and that you're never going to judge in my favor because this person has a relationship with you. And she said, sure. Okay. Yeah. I admit it. That was the first hearing in front of her. And I've had that as my judge ever since. How come you haven't seen your son in so long? How was it? You said a year and a half now? Yeah. So I had to cancel services with the last location because they gave a bad report to the meteor, mediator of me without me present after the one that was actually supervising me sat there and said that I was an excellent father. And every time she was training a new employee, she would tell him, this is not an example of the type of parent that you will find in here. John is a very active parent. He loves his son. He feeds him healthy every time and read to him. I taught him social things like, if you get frustrated, what do you do, son? No, we don't get angry. Take a deep breath. We try to figure it out. And if we can't, we ask for help. That's not weakness to ask for help. That's the whole way that humans have gotten as strong as we are is because we work as teams. Absolutely. And you know what? Everything that I've ever taught my son is like a giant like happiness for me because, hey, I'm teaching this person that I love so much to be a good person, maybe even better than I am. If I can manage that, yeah, that is the greatest accomplishment of my life. And I would very much like to be able to participate in his life and his development at this point, but they're blocking me from it. And how they're blocking me from it is I had to drop that last location after that report. Obviously, they weren't going to be honest, and they were charging me $60 an hour basically to rip me off. They wanted me to stay there because I cleaned up, I cleaned up uh, every time I went there, and I cleaned up after our visit because it was mm-hmm. just gross. And I didn't want my son to be in that. So I brought in a wagon full of things, you know, a play mat, books, toys, everything that he was familiar with to try and make it more comfortable for him so that he wasn't constantly trying to adapt to a new circumstance, a new environment. He's still a toddler, you know, he needs some kind of continuity. You know, I just really love my son. You know, the thing is that once somebody gets a domestic violence restraining order against you, you have no power. Yeah. you can't even protect yourself. You can't move. You can't sell your own property and you can't get out of the marriage. I have still married three and a half years after petitioning for a divorce. Really? Because I won't sign a settlement in which there is an agreement on her legal payments because she wants the judge to decide that for her because, oh. of course, the judge is going to decide that I have to pay for it. And in doing that, I have nothing left. Like I'd have to sell my home, which is the only investment in our son's future that exists. She has nothing for him. You know, I've spent every penny that I had gone into the maximum amount of debt that I could while still sustaining my household. There's no luxury in my home. Like I'm wearing a crappy t-shirt. I don't own fancy clothes. This is old. This is like six, seven years old. And it was a gift. I don't buy anything for myself. It gets better. This brother. laptop was was because my other one broke and I couldn't use it anymore. And it only cost 300 bucks. I need it for the court and to fight for our son. The only reason I had furniture in my first apartment was because the gentleman who does the disclaimer on, on this podcast gave me his old living room set. Another buddy got a new dining yep. room set because they were happily married. <laughs> I got yep. their whole dining room set. I mean, couch, my bed. Yep. Everything is in my name because she's not very good at managing money. I don't want to speak negatively of her, but it's just the truth. Yeah. She has no bills. Like, seriously, there's there's no reason for this. I had all the bills. I paid all the bills while we were married. Every single bill. She was so spoiled. Well, it's funny as you're finding, I just wanted it, to... you're finding out ahead. from our brothers in uh, false, uh, Falsely Accused Network UK, 
the fact you're paying all the bills now becomes a financial was a financial abuse because you're you're holding all the money. No, because money. once you have a DV order against you, you can't possibly be abused. Right. It's brutal, brother. It's brutal. Yeah, there's no way to prove your innocence when somebody accepts, you know, a favor as an excuse for granting the orders and no evidence is accepted throughout the entire case. And when they granted the orders to make them permanent later under commissioner, now judge Merlis Stockdale, my attorney of record, which they're using as an excuse to block me from accessing the court by refusing to substitute out that attorney who's filed substitution twice now was not notified for that hearing. And also I was not present. So them granting the orders without me present or notifying my attorney is technically illegal entirely. Also, there was no evidence. Like, you can't just provide a permanent restraining order against somebody with no evidence in the file, no evidence presented that it ever occurred, and no proof that it ever occurred. But apparently you can. My, uh, my ex's lawyer, she let my kids leave the country when she was supposed to hold the passports. And I can say this because I can prove it without my permission. And nobody seems to want to do anything about that. No, they're not going to do anything. I filed a complaint about misconduct from Judge Ueda and went to Judge Awani, who was the same judge that greeted her at the day of my trial and basically gave her a hug verbally right. out of a room full of people wearing masks. A hundred people in the room, that was the only person she greeted. You knew that was going to go well. <laughs> oh no, so that just... morning I told my lawyer, I said, you need to tell the judge that I have no confidence that I will receive a fair trial in this court after observing that. Did your lawyer? And she didn't. Yeah, of course she not. threw me under the bus. They held that pre-trial conference and just basically tribunalized how they were going to ruin my life and our sons for profit. Have you looked into the Dad's Caucus? Representative Gomez out of LA. He's from your state. There's another person that I communicate with on a social media platform that is also working with a legislative team that's running similar legislation that I'm trying to push. And I and it's important that we keep pushing these legislations until some of it sticks because that's the only way we're going to get any accountability. It's not going to be all at once mm-hmm. because there's going to be so much pushback from the people that I'm, I'm sorry to say there's no other word for it, but are corrupt and don't want that legislation to pass and are in leadership positions. So we have to just keep pushing. And we have to use our vote. We have to vote for the people that vote for the things that matter to us. A lot of people, they don't take the time to research and they'll just vote along party lines. I can't do that. I can't do that. I'm a registered Republican. We need to maintain our standpoint as one of the leading countries in the world for social advancement and technological advancement. Agreed. You know, those things are very important because if we don't compete, then we'll become somebody else's subordinate. Yeah, absolutely. That's a bad thing. Republican dads, Democratic dads, they're both losing their kids. So I I vote my conscience. And the thing about voting your conscience is not blindly voting along party lines. You have to research each of the Senate bills, see what little things they are. They're trying to sneak in on top of the things they claim it is because they always do that. And if it's not that bad, you know, and the Senate bill is doing something good and eh, whatever, we'll let it pass. Right. We'll vote for that. Right. That's just how it works. Like they got to trade something to get something. And it's an unfortunate system how it works now, but they get away with these things and we can't let them yeah. like that's the bottom line. If they're going to change something in that way that's drastic and harmful to the public, we can't vote that person back into office. We need to pay attention and know when those things are happening. And that's why podcasts like yours are so important we need to remind people that our decisions do affect our ability to live comfortable lives like the bottom line is if we don't act in a way that's beneficial to us when we're voting if we act blindly if we don't make the right decisions about who we're voting for and a lot of people do that because you're in a hurry and you just want to contribute how you can by voting if you're not doing it by your conscience you're hurting yourself you're hurting future generations because as you change laws It's not us that's going to see the major impact of that. It's going to be our kids and our grandkids. And they're going to be the ones that's going to have to fight to fix it. Absolutely. That's not their job. It's our job right now, right here, to make the right decisions so that they don't have to go back and fix our mistakes. It is our responsibility. And you know what? It's our fault that the family courts have gotten this bad because we let them. We let them get this bad. We let them pass all these legislations. 
We didn't go out and protest right away. And you know what? Men, we're far worse about it than women are. Women are much better at organizing and protesting Mm -hmm. than we are. Men don't like to complain. And if we do complain, we're often punished for it. You know, that's what society teaches us. So it's hard when men are the primary targets of certain types of corruption to really get any change. But that's what I would really like to impart on your listeners is that your vote does matter. Like you need to make these decisions based on what would you want for future generations, because that's who it impacts. You know, some of these laws, they don't actually become laws for years and then they don't actually start making any impact for years after that. You got to be right now, right here in the moment, knowing what's going on with your legislation. And you might not even understand all the language, but understand that if you don't understand the legislation, you probably shouldn't vote it in. <laughs> That's a good idea. Good. Like if you don't understand, they're probably trying to hide something. If you don't have time to educate yourself on, on everything that's going on, use your best judgment. Like if it doesn't seem like it's going to benefit you or benefit your family in the future, you probably should vote no on it. There's a plenty, plenty of other qualified candidates that can do those jobs much more efficient way that will look out for your family, especially when they're put under the magnifying glass. John, to wrap up, what advice would you give to someone just getting into this? Unfortunately, you're really in the middle of it. Well, I've been in this for three and a half years. The first thing that I can tell you is if things are going your way, do not complain. Okay. Family courts will absolutely retaliate. If you have visitation that's not paid, if you have custody that's not paid, do not complain. Don't complain privately. Don't complain publicly because they will absolutely retaliate against you. They don't want anything that happens in those courts, even if it's corrupt, disgust, and they will retaliate against you without fail. And they will not be held accountable in any way for it. Protect your family's best interests. The second thing is that if things are not going well for you, absolutely complain. <laughs> yep. Absolutely complain. Because you know what? Being silent isn't protecting your family. No. It's not. It's not protecting your interest. It's not protecting your family's interest. It's not protecting anyone else's family's interests. And the more that we allow these things to go on in silence, the more that we're allowing them to harm our future generations. It has to be spoken about. And I can tell you firsthand, I kept quiet just because, you know, play along, it'll be okay. Play along, Chuck, play along. And it just got worse and worse and mm-hmm. worse. And that's exactly what I did until I started complaining. And then it was pretty obvious that I'd been blackballed. And they will blackball you if you continue to complain. Uh, They'll do it in the most illegal ways. And nobody will hold them accountable. We're getting there. We're getting there. If you are separated from your children and you can't see them for a long period of time, there's an opportunity for that other parent to be alienating your child. Yeah. So what you want to do is anytime you're thinking of your child, anything, anytime there's a major landmark that you miss a birthday, a holiday, their first day of school, and you're thinking about that child, you write that child a handwritten letter. You tell them how important they are to you. You tell them why you're writing the letter, what special occasion is happening, or if you're just thinking about them. You don't make it about the other parent. Yep. You make it entirely about how you love that child, how much you would very much love to be present at that thing, and how much they matter to you. And then the best thing you can do is bring back a happy memory in that letter. Tell them what you think about when you think of them, what makes you so happy about them. Keep all of those letters. Put them in a shoebox, a box, however many letters you write. It might need a bigger container. Yeah, It might be a long time. But when that person comes to you, and they will, they will eventually come to you demanding to know why you weren't part of their life for X period, you hand them that box of letters. And you tell them, I love you, and this is how much I love you. I wanted to be part of your life every time I wrote one of these letters and every time in between. And that might just save your relationship with the child. That's what I do for my son. And I've suggested it to other parents and they can lie all they want about how you feel about them. But when you hand somebody a box full of handwritten letters that say otherwise for a long period of time, they're going to believe the letters. They're going to keep those letters forever. Try to keep positive. Don't break the restraining order. Don't do it. Don't do that. Don't let her trick you into breaking the restraining order because women will do that. Don't let her break the restraining order. And if she does, keep a record of it. Last piece of advice that I'll give you too is that you're not crazy. 
a lot of people will be like, am, am I imagining these things are happening? Because it's hard to believe that a system would be this corrupt. The thing is, it is this corrupt. You're not imagining it. You're not the only one. You're not alone. You are absolutely not alone. There are groups out here that are harder to find. But if you look, especially on social media, you should be able to find some support. By taking care of yourself, you are taking care of your children that you're not able to see. And that is the most important thing is your children. Well, we are starting the Falsely Accused Network US partnership with our UK brothers. Hopefully down in New Zealand, we'll get another one going. I mean, yeah, this- we got Australia people in there now already, I think. Yeah. And hopefully New Zealand too, and more Canadians. We've got a few more Americans coming in today. I just recently joined the Falsely Accused Network, but I've also volunteered to help however I can. Cool. I think it's a good program for fathers, especially because we don't have any support for the most part. There's no government funded programs. All of, They all go to females. You know, They're just going to go protect females. And that's fine, but we also need our own groups. We need protection as well. Yeah. And, it, and that's just equality. Everybody deserves to be protected equally. John, thank you for being on the show, man. I appreciate you telling your story. I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. Yeah. If you want me to organize anything in the future too. Um, Excellent. Thank you, brother. Right, I appreciate this it. Was that isn't even my entire story. I just kind of touched a base. Let me tell you. I've got a 400-page book. All right, brother. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. Well, John sums it up perfectly. We got to expect a lot more out of our politicians. Make sure you're not just checking a single box when you vote next time. It just might be the difference between you seeing or not seeing your children again. And now that we're becoming a movement, we will be expecting this from our politicians. We'll be expecting to hear from them about fathers' rights about combating false allegations, and about how they're going to help us stay in our children's lives instead of forcing us out. Brothers and sisters, you have got to love the letterbox idea. Put in mementos, trinkets, personalized letters. Personally, I did an email campaign. Whatever you can do to memorialize in time your love for your children, I can't put enough emphasis on this. It'll be so important. And the hope it'll bring you Every time you put that letter in the box, that someday in the future, your child will find this letter, find this note, find your heart. You can't put a price on that. You can't put a price on hope. We must get our voices out there. Send us your stories to Why Daddy Never Cries at Gmail or Why Daddy Never Cries on Facebook. Remember, this is a daily and sometimes hourly struggle. So follow us on Daddy Never Cries at Twitter and Why Daddy Never Cries on Instagram. And let your voice be heard. Let's end the fatherless children's syndrome that's plaguing this world. You can't change what happened to you, brothers. So figure out how to make it work for you and your children. When life gave me lemons, I said to hell with a glass. I'm making an international lemonade franchise. So until next time, take a deep breath. You've got this, Daddy. Don't know where, where